Let's pray. Father, this morning we thank you for spiritual sight. As your word says, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. And you tell us that that revelation and that insight means that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. That the old has passed away and that the new has come. And so we gather as gracious recipients of your intervention to see your glory, to make you our prize. And as your students, as your learners, as your disciples and followers, God, we pray that you would give us ears to hear the voice of our teacher and our Lord. This is no small ask. Particularly with the challenging words that dislodge a lot of how we think about our lives. So would you give us insight as another version of of the way you gave us insight to see the glory of your son would you help us to see more we pray in jesus name and for his sake amen who is fortunate who's really well off I want you to take a second and think about and imagine a person or a few people who are in that category for you. Who is fortunate? Who's in a favored position? I really want you to do that. So go ahead. Think about it. Got somebody? Okay. Now, why did you pick them? How did you, there are thousands of people I'm sure that you have run across in your life and know through history and how did you land on that person? In what way are they fortunate or in what way are they favored? Some of you might have uh, heard the phrase well off and thought of wealth, right? You thought of Elon Musk or Warren Buffett or others of you might have went political with it. We're in a political season and think, well, who's Who's the favorite? Who's ahead in the polls? Maybe some of you used difficulties that you're facing to affect how you view who's well off. So if your family's in turmoil right now, you think the fortunate are people whose families have peace. Or if you went through what most of us went through and getting sick for a a couple of weeks or something, like just people who are healthy, (laughs) they're so fortunate. Who is well off and why? This exercise, it forces us to do a few things. It forces comparison, right? There are, of course, different ways of thinking about wealth and those things based on your context. Between the United States and Haiti, there are very different understandings of what it means to be wealthy or well off. It also forces us to make some assumptions. There's a lot of people we thought were very well off who check into... um, yeah, addiction centers and have private demons that are that are uh, causing them to wrestle with with difficult things in life. It forces us to ask questions about timing. When are we talking about a person being fortunate? 
You think of the millions of dollars that a lot of the NFL players, that a lot of us will watch this afternoon. I won't tell you whose team I'm pulling for, but uh, a lot of people would think they're favored. But it might depend on when you, you know, talk to them about that and how the physical toll takes, uh, costs them later on in life. When is a person favored and how long does it last? So being well off, it depends on a lot of things, cultural comparisons, public appearances, varying timelines. So how do we really know who's truly fortunate? Fresh off choosing apostles, Jesus introduces one of his mainline sermons with a riveting explanation of what it means to be fortunate or what true and lasting favor actually is. He defines who's well-off or blessed and who is cursed or to be pitied, and he flips people's expectations upside down, and he's going to challenge, if we are listening, our understanding as well. He's going to dislodge a few things in our conception of what it means to be fortunate or well-off. Before we turn to his actual introduction, I want to look at how Luke introduces uh, the scene in Luke chapter 6, verses 17 through 19. He gives us a little snapshot before we hear these famous words. In Luke 16, 17 through 19, it says this, And he came down with them, meaning apostles, and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. Jesus has just chosen his twelve, and they come down to it's a level place or a plateau. This could have been a mountainous region. Um, and they come down to what was a sizable crowd that was gathering. This is Jesus' Sermon on the Plain. It's a condensed version of Matthew's Sermon on the Mount. We aren't sure if this is the same scene or if it's a similar sermon given in a different context. I don't see any reason why it couldn't be the same one. But either way, Luke sets it up intentionally with this scene of powerful ministry where there's this large multitude that have traveled far, even from the seacoast, from Tyre and Sidon. If you remember, in Jesus' controversial sermon in his hometown of Nazareth, he talked about how Elijah passed over Israel and went to the Gentiles and to a widow there. And you know where she lived? In the land of Sidon. And so here, even people from Sidon are listening and from that area, which means this is a diverse group with lots of needs. We hear about demon possession and people who are ill. And this is a different kind of crowd. This is a receptive crowd. This isn't the crowd that's critiquing everything he's saying. This is a crowd that is witnessing his healing, his ministry. They've come to hear. They've come to be healed. And Jesus exercises his authority and his power by, by meeting the needs of this diverse crowd. And I think the reason why Luke has this before is because it shows us Jesus has a captive audience. It's hard to think of someone who had more credibility in this moment, than the credibility that Jesus had before he gives this sermon. With that in mind, let's hear the introduction to his sermon in verses 20 through 26. It says, And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. 
Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Before we jump into these one by one, I think we need to spend time understanding the whole. And what I want to do is give you four observations that will serve as a way for us to frame what Jesus is teaching. You can think of it as four sides of a box. Now, I know we, as Americans, like out-of-the-box thinking. We don't like boxes. Okay, so just put that aside for a second. We need to understand the intention of the speaker and of, of the author to really get at what the Holy Spirit's inspiring through this text. And so uh, statements like these can be abused and, and misused. So, four observations that help serve to frame what Jesus is talking about. First, you'll notice the blessings and woes, they correspond And they're saying the same thing in a different way. So the blessings and woes. This is language we're familiar with, right? Blessed is the man who walks not on the counsel of the wicked. This is the language of wisdom, Psalms, and of Proverbs, of Deuteronomy and Moses. who are saying, you'll be blessed if you do this, and you'll be cursed if you do that. Blessed here means fortunate or favored, happy in a deeper sense, right? The blessed person is whose life you desire and admire. It's the ideal. It's true and lasting, well-off life. And woe is a little less familiar to us, but it means disaster. It means to have a sense of dread about what's coming or to be cursed. One author's definition is this, an exclamation of pain or pity for the misfortune that awaits someone in a certain condition. So it's the antonym of blessed, really. It's the person you don't want to be. It's the fate you want to avoid. That's the woe. And you'll notice that these statements of blessedness and woe correspond, right? You have first the poor as a blessed, and then woe to the rich. Hungry, and then the full or satisfied. Those who weep are blessed, and woe to those who laugh now. Hatred and persecution, and then being approved of or spoken well of. These are meant to go together, which is why when we look at them individually, we'll look at them in those couplets. And Jesus is doing this because he's in, at the same time, he's incentivizing them and warning them. He's saying, here's the desired life and here's the dreaded life at the same time. He's giving out assurance and insecurity in the same introduction. And he's using this familiar prophetic language to describe what true and lasting favor is. Not just what it appears to be, which is kind of the hook that he uses. Now, we have to ask, well, who is he trying to assure and who is he trying to warn? Look at verse 20. It says, and he lifted up his eyes on his disciples. We have to remember that Jesus is speaking to a certain audience and a captive audience at that. These are people who seem to want to follow him. 
It doesn't mean that the implications are only for the people in this crowd because there are things like woe to you, right? And describes people who don't align with Jesus. But one of his major motivations in speaking is to provide assurance and comfort for this group of people, these disciples. So that's our first little line of the box. The second one, these are spiritual truths tied to earthly realities. Spiritual truths tied to earthly realities. We have to remember that Jesus starts off fighting perceptions. The way things seem are not necessarily the way things are. When we think of poor, hungry, weeping, and persecuted, we don't think, that's the life I want. That's the well-off life. Or, wealth, satisfaction, laughter, and approval, like, that's something to really avoid, right? And this is exactly why Jesus starts this way, to get our attention and to show us kind of how backwards we really have it. But he's using these phrases as spiritual descriptors. But these spiritual descriptors are tied to earthly realities. That's why he's using categories of people. The blessed obviously describe who identify with Jesus. This is saying that things that characterize the poor, things like dependence and humility through experience, are accurate descriptions of what disciples are like. It's a bit like saying, quiet as a nun, no offense to nuns, or smart as a surgeon, right? When you're saying that, you're you're not actually assuming that every single person in that category acts a certain way. You're pointing out what's generally true to get a point across, and that's what he's doing. These aren't purely spiritual concepts detached from physical, real, living, breathing people. And these aren't merely earthly concepts detached from spiritual truth. There are spiritual truths tied to earthly realities. Now, you might wonder, why is Jesus speaking so categorically here? Why does he do this? As if, obviously, anyone who's poor or hungry or weeping are automatically somehow better off for it in a spiritual sense. And we, we, we shouldn't say that categorically, because this is the temptation of the ascetic person, Right? who sells all their stuff to help the poor and thinking that that would meet God's approval. It sounds like a lot, you know, like the Pharisee who boasts of his fasting or the Christian who delights in his misery or his joylessness. Of course, the problem with that is that the person who sells everything or starves themselves of food or joy are doing exactly what the gospel forbids. They're relying on themselves. They're just using spiritual activity as a form of self-reliance. So the crowd, we have to remember, this crowd that he's speaking to, they're actually a good example of what Jesus is talking about. Many were probably materially disadvantaged, they're poor. Many have traveled long distances to hear him. They may be hungry because their pursuit of Jesus meant going way out of their way. So Jesus is speaking to a specific crowd, but he's not speaking strictly in a categorical way. But he's not willing to sever the connection between the spiritual reality and the the earthly truth. He's using those characteristics of those folks to teach something about the way of the kingdom and who kingdom citizens are. So, spiritual meaning, earthly realities. Number three, these truths are in relation to Jesus Christ. These are not statements in a vacuum to like be in a, a world religions course and impersonally applied. Like These are specifically descriptions of life that is attached or not attached to Jesus. Okay, The well-off life is found in relationship to the Son of Man. 
That's where his lasting favor is found. Those in him are blessed. Those who do not align with him are in a dreadful position. We know this from verse 22 when he says the phrase, on account of the Son of Man. All these things are, are tied to relationship with him. And that little phrase, on account of the Son of Man, really bleeds into the whole text. Blessed are those who are poor on account of the Son of Man. Woe to those who have no regard for Jesus at all. These truths are in relation to Jesus Christ. Lastly, these truths assume an expanded view of life, including life after death. You know, when I asked you to consider someone who was fortunate or well-off, you thought of someone probably who was fortunate or well-off on earthly terms in some way. And that's, that's somewhat normal. But when we think about what true life is, a lot of times we just avoid thinking about what's after death, and unless we're forced to by going to a funeral or something tragic happens, and then we think about it. But when it comes to discussion of the good life, we mostly think in terms of here and now. But Jesus doesn't do that. Because if we live the overwhelming majority of our life after we die, it makes a lot of sense to include that in the definition of what the good life is, right? Why would we exclude that? That would be crazy. This kind of reasoning isn't foreign to us, right? Anyone who invests in a retirement account can't afford to panic when the reports start to show losses because the long-term investment assumes some short-term loss. You've got to do that. That's a part of it. So this view of life is an expansive view. It's an it's an eternity in mind kind of view. And he's saying, look, if all you're going to do when you think about who's fortunate and who's not is take this incredibly small sample of your 75 or 80 years and think about that. That's a terribly short-sighted approach. If all of your hopes and desires are invested in life on earth, your problem is that your desires are too small and too short-term. So Jesus wants to expand that. So these are the, the sides of the box. These truths correspond, and they say the same thing in a different way. They're spiritual truths tied to earthly realities. They assume relationship with Jesus, or they're in the context of relationship with Jesus, and they assume this expanded view of life, including life after death. So what does Jesus really then say about these things? I want to go through them together, both with the blessing and the woe. First, the spiritually poor receive a lasting kingdom, not a temporary one. Look at the first one. Second half of 20. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Verse 24, the counterpoint. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Jesus speaks to this recognized spiritual poverty that finds value in Christ. And we can know that this is kind of his overall target because he talks about the reward in terms of a heavenly kingdom. So if it were just any poor in mind, why would the promise of the kingdom be reassuring? It's because he's describing uh, a spiritual reality. That the spiritually poor are heirs. They're heirs of a kingdom, in fact. Of adoption, of forgiveness, of power through the Spirit, of resurrection life. This is... Their lack in both in physical and spiritual terms is overcome by God's generosity in giving them the kingdom. This is what it's like for those who are poor. And notice it says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God in the present. 
Meaning this starts now. There's access that's granted. Kingdom realities have begun in measure. There is room at the banquet table even now. And you may not have the esteem from society or the resources that other people have, but because of your affiliation with Jesus, that affiliation makes you wealthy in kingdom terms. It will provide for all that's needed for lasting life. The kingdom is yours. Now, he says the opposite to the rich. He says, you have already received your consolation. For those who have put their security in earthly things and resources, they will bottom out in the end. They have foregone the offer of consolation by Messiah and instead invested in what is now and today. One author says, the spiritually insensitive rich hold only an empty bag. And Luke illustrates this for us later on in his gospel with the rich man and Lazarus, if you remember. It's a perfect illustration for this dynamic where every day this rich man passes the gates and there's a poor man lying there. And this, the rich man eats to his heart content, oblivious to the needs of the poor around him. The poor man waits for scraps. He's lying there with sores that the local dogs lick. It's a really pitiful sight. And both men die and the rich man instinctually Ask the poor man to relieve his suffering, to which Abraham says, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things. And Lazarus, the poor man, in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. The point is this. Those who trust their spiritual needs to the Son of Man, they receive a kingdom. An actual kingdom. And those who live only for earthly consolation get exactly and only that. He's urging us to realize now what we will realize on our deathbed. That all the security in the world won't do you a bit of good when you leave it. Only one kingdom keeps. Secondly, the spiritually hungry will be satisfied forever. Those satisfied now will have endless lack. Look at 21. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. And 25. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. This is really an extension of the spiritual poverty we talked earlier. Those in need turn their desires and aspirations towards Jesus. They can't wait. They're eager and long to be with Him. And because of this, there is this constant nagging gap between desire and fulfillment. And it will be that way until we're with Him again. We know as followers of Jesus, if that is our goal and He is our satisfaction, then there is a ceiling to the peace that this life can offer. And there will always be a gap until He comes When you're hungry, it's different when you're hungry and there's no hope of food versus if you're hungry and you know there's a meal waiting for you in time. This is the sense, I think, that Jesus is after, but it's so easy for us to be impatient and to make concessions, isn't it? That those who don't align with Jesus, they commit to the scramble for for fulfillment and satisfaction trying increasingly to legitimize a range of desires. 
And those who make this concession only take what a fallen world can offer and therefore commit themselves to unending hunger, Jesus says. We see this reversal early on, even in Mary's song in Luke chapter 1. She says, He has shown strength with His arm in Luke 1.51. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich He has sent empty away. This is reminiscent of the Old Testament hope where God provides for what His people need, this hunger that He alone satisfies. In Psalm 107, it says, He turns a desert into pools of water, a parched land into springs of water, and there He lets the hungry dwell. And they establish a city to live in, and they sow fields and plant vineyards and get a fruitful yield. By His blessing, they multiply greatly. This is the picture of the feast that awaits the spiritually hungry. Third, the spiritually grieved will have great joy, while those who mock now will weep. This was particularly poignant to me this week because this this is a progression where we have poverty that leads to hunger, that leads to grief and weeping. Associating with Jesus was going to cost a lot of people who are listening to this sermon in a lot of different ways. And spiritual need and hunger, coupled with some physical need and actual hunger, it leads to grief. Now, this grief could be the byproduct of suffering alongside with your Messiah. It could be the grief of knowing your own sin. It could be the grief of just being in a world that breaks every day in different ways. Our world lacks much. And there is a place for lament and a place for tears. And Jesus acknowledges that. Weeping will characterize, in a way, the disciple, the follower of Him. But then one day, this grief, this grieving, this weeping, it will end. And not in kind of the slow way that you miss the person who passed away that slowly kind of fades and the ache just kind of Lessons over time. It will be a sudden reversal of this grieving for lasting joy. God will suddenly intervene and restore a world that is groaning. And in God's moment, sadness and evil will be extinct and only a memory. And Christ Himself will personally wipe away our tears, bringing full and final justice and joyful laughter will characterize what it means to be in the kingdom of God forever and in an undiminished way. That's the hope in front of those who rightly grieve in a world that is broken as people who are broken. And as full of hope as that statement is, its opposite is equally hopeless. That for those who are not submitted to Jesus, there will be great mourning and great loss. Laughter in this sense is almost has a mocking tone to it. Like when Israel was overrun by her enemies and, and the surrounding nations would laugh. It's a certain obliviousness and a chosen blindness to the, to the way that the world lacks peace. It's a callousness. That those who laugh now ignore the deep suffering around them. They ignore the sin within them and the sin that pervades a lot 
of what we see in society. And for those who ignore that, there will be grief and mourning. These are as sad as they are hopeful. The fourth one is like cold water because it's very much a here and now reality that he describes in verses 22 through 23 and also in 26. He says, Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. What does this mean? The mocked and mistreated for Jesus' sake will rejoice in heavenly reward, while those chasing human approval will meet disaster. Notice that this mistreatment is dished out on account of the Son of Man, and it's multifaceted. It's hatred, meaning people genuinely oppose what you are for. It's exclusion, meaning you're put out of the synagogue in some ways, or maybe your business suffers as a result of aligning yourself with this crazy rabbi Jesus. It includes mocking and tarnishing your good name. And this is probably the hardest of the four to believe in some ways, that the life that is hated and excluded and reviled and insulted, like that's the fortunate life. Jesus literally says, jump for joy when that happens. How can he say that? If you've ever been in this kind of position where you've been ridiculed or misrepresented or spoken ill of, this is not our natural reaction. And he knows that, which is why he says, verse 23, why would we rejoice in that day and leap for joy? Because our reward, reward is great in heaven. This is not because of what has happened to you. It's deplorable what happens in persecution. It's because of what it indicates. That suffering for Jesus means association with Jesus. And association with Jesus means lasting vindication. Even if it means short-term rejection. It's traded for reward. And the contrast to this is, of course, chasing the approval of those around you. Or you're living for likes and, and having your life guided by that. The Apostle Paul says that faithfulness to Christ and popularity are often at odds. He says, if I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. In Galatians 1. Now, this suffering is not glamorizing those who are obnoxious and have self-inflicted suffering through their insensitivity and stupidity. That's not what the kind of suffering we're talking about here. Peter himself is, distinguishes between these things in his writings as well. This is suffering that is due to identifying with Jesus and likeness to Jesus. Before you write off the people of verse 26, can you just resonate with them for a moment? Appeasing others, it does bring short-term peace. And sometimes temporary peace sounds pretty good. (laughs) This isn't talking about receiving a compliment or warranted appreciation. This is the mutually exclusive variety of approval where it's choose this day whom you will serve kind of approval. You can't serve two masters. You have to end up angering one. 
This kind of people-pleasing is like dodging the full gospel and sharing a more palatable version. It's telling half the story that makes you look good and the other person look demonized. It's trying to win an audience and have that be the foremost goal in your mind. It's drawing a line in the sand and lining up on the other side of Jesus. That's what this kind of appeasing others is. As you come to a close in this, notice that both of these sections, the blessed and the woes, in regard to this, refer to prophets, whether true or false. The blesseds on this list are like the prophets, right? They, they're misunderstood and they're in the path of suffering, but that path leads to glory. That path leads to vindication. But those who seek to please are like the false prophets. Men who preserve their title and benefits through agreement and the tickling of ears. They use their words to buy time, which of course runs out. And Jesus refers back to these prophets and false prophets to demonstrate that this is not new. This is how it's always been and how it always will be. The question of who is fortunate precedes Jesus' sermon. It goes all the way back to the garden and these rival conceptions of who gets to define what the good life is. Is God's definition enough for me? Or will I insert my own definition of that? Which vision of reality will I chase? And this reference to the prophets, I think, also means that these words are just as relevant now as they were then. Even though they dislodge and kind of reverse on our natural thoughts of what it means to be well off. And so what I want to do in, in application is ask you three pesky questions. I hope, they get, I hope they're pesky. We'll see. But I think these questions will help us to... to to really take Jesus' challenging words and think, are, are we willing to adopt what reality is according to the words of Jesus in spite of what we naturally think? First question. How do Jesus' words challenge your view of who's fortunate and who's to be pitied? Reconsider what having it all in your view means. Whose life do you envy? Whose life do you want to avoid at all costs, and why? Blessed are who. Woe to who. Blessed are the entertained, for they shall be artificially joyful. Blessed are the retired, for they can rest at will. Blessed are the attractive, for they are seen and valued. Blessed are those who never doubt, or who have grandchildren, or have a certain gift in the church, or look a certain way. What is it? Woe to those who call my opinion into question. Woe to those with certain political sympathies. Woe to those who struggle with certain sins. What is your understanding of the good life or the pitied life? And how does Jesus challenge that thinking? Maybe it's just one of these statements that you need to latch on to this week. Number two, how might the timing of these blessings and woes prompt trust in Jesus? How about the timing of these blessings and woes prompt trust in Jesus? It's important when you read this text to note the, the time that it's pointing to, whether now or the time to come. These words are really easy to agree with and really hard to live under. This is partially because the hope that they give, the reward that they incentivize us with, 
will only be experienced when we see Jesus again. And so they require a trust in His words and His explanation of reality that we haven't yet seen. In a strange way, I hope this encourages some of you who are discouraged here. Some of you who are familiar with weeping and have thought, what is, what is wrong with me? That as you find sin in yourself or you see the brokenness in its many forms, you grieve and it seems like everyone else is happy and it defines Christianity in terms of this kind of shiny happiness that you just do not resonate with at all. Hear the words of Jesus for kingdom citizens that blessed are those who weep. Jesus' words mean that these responses of grief, this lack of satisfaction, this holy discontent, are not a lack of faith or trust in God, but are perhaps the result of faith in God that is simply awaiting the coming salvation and the joy that will accompany His return. This same question, how does the timing of these blessings and woes prompt trust in Jesus, works when you think about the woes as well. Perhaps you find the woes of Jesus to be a more accurate description of your heart's desire and pursuit. And maybe you realize that the boundary line of what I'm hoping and dreaming is really addressed to planet Earth. And there's nothing beyond that. And if that's the case, trust in the timing of Jesus' words. That earthly consolation consisting of full bellies and oblivious laughter now will lead to inconsolable mourning and sorrow. If you are buying time, And containing your definition of the good life to only this life, the time will run out. And it will be soon. So how might the timing of these blessings and woes prompt trust in Jesus? Lastly, how do these words help you to receive grace today and give grace tomorrow? I'll bet that this crowd did not expect this introduction, right? Here is Jesus and all of his power and authority and glory displaying you know, this incredible ministry in the scene before. It's like what someone at First Things First said, that this was not the expected intro. Blessed are the railed against. <laughs> the spiritually poor. But these are words of grace. Because if those with little to offer and those who lack and those whose emotions are reflective of those things, if those are the people who are blessed then there is wide access to grace. And isn't it in our poverty and in our inability that we discover and find grace? These people are blessed not because of what is in them. That's the point of why Jesus is describing them in this way. They are blessed because of who God is and what God has done. Not because of how they're positioned. As much as you and I want to to tinker with the economy of God's kingdom in terms that are deserved. These categories show us that God's favor, God's grace, is given on undeserving terms. These Beatitudes resonate with what I have found to be true in trying to be a help to people. I am the most hopeful when I sense a humility and a neediness in a person because they are positioned to receive One of the most encouraging things in ministry is to see people who are genuinely broken and convicted of their sin. It's the best. Because it's how life really is. 
right? It, it's, it's what's really going on in the actual status of things. We're not dealing with appearances in the kingdom of God anymore, as Jesus points out. And these difficulties and trials and persecutions and ways that we are pressed and stretched and find ourselves in circumstances that force us to rely on outside help, these are a grace to us. These things are, of course, easier to see in the lives of other people than my own life. But I'm working on that. So the question is, how do these words help you to receive grace? These are unimpressive categories for a reason. So what grace do you receive just in realizing that these are the people who are blessed? And then also, how does that grace get extended to other people? This is a great way to prepare people for the statements, love your enemies. And be consistent in your judgment. And start with the stick and not the splinter. And build, build the house on a foundation, not the sand. Receiving the grace of the Beatitudes paves the way for distributing grace to other people. And if, Jesus, if what Jesus says is true, then that changes how we pray for people, doesn't it? If this is really how the world works, and who's fortunate and who's not, then that changes how we think about what benefits others. It, these assurances that we're given as the spiritually poor frees us to move towards other people, even our enemies. It helps you to simply weep with those who weep. It legitimizes that ministry and that action. It gives you words of hope for those who are hurting and struggling, who may find themselves in this, these situations. Maybe it prompts you to try to awaken those who misread their woeful situation as blessed, and you know what Jesus says. If this is really how the world works and what, how reality is, then we ought to change our approach to others, and we do that because of the grace we have received first. So how do these words help you to receive grace today and give grace tomorrow? Let's let those questions bug us this week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the directness of your Son and for revealing to us how things actually are and not how we perceive them to be. That people who are impoverished and needy and grieved are people who you've prepared a kingdom for and satisfaction for and untold delight for. These are not easy things to view persecution or to view alignment with you and whatever cascades from that as joy. So God, would you expand our view, expand our understanding of what of how the world actually works and what it means to be well off. This is a different way of thinking and living. And I pray you would empower us to, to see things and to live in light of how things really are, not just how we perceive them to be. So may that lead to transparency in our church. May that lead to, to ravenous hunger for truth and to know you. May that lead to lament when it's appropriate, knowing that 
our consolation is coming. And regardless of what it means to follow you, make it lead to joy. In the context we find ourselves in at work or in this society, God, we want to be your disciples and your vessels. God, help us to keep our eyes fixed on you, come what may. I pray for a recklessness in pursuing you. Give us eyes to see and to live in a way that corresponds to this reality, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.